Spring has barely sprung in our area, but already there's plenty of talk about mosquitoes. Before they've even had an opportunity to become pesky, uninvited guests at our backyard barbecues and other outdoor activities, many of us have mosquitoes on our minds due to an emerging mosquito-borne disease that's making headlines as it makes its way around the globe. It's called Zika virus, and so far, its mosquito carriers are being linked to a wide path of illness, severe birth defects, even deaths in several countries around the world. So what threat level could Zika virus pose for our country and, closer to home, our community? One thing that I really like to share with people is that certainly it's something to be concerned of for a specific population that is most at risk, but for most people, it's not something that they should worry about. That's one of the important messages. What could the future hold for mosquito-borne diseases like Zika virus? What's going to happen in the future at this point is anybody's guess. I personally am guessing that it's not going to be a big issue in the majority of North America, but if it did, then I wouldn't be surprised. And later, we'll hear from one area expert who shares the importance of thinking and acting locally and globally when it comes to public health issues. Think about Zika in the context of global health. In the United States, we tend to respond when things affect the United States. So that's something that we need to keep in mind, not just to respond when things affect the United States. Take a closer look as we examine an emerging disease, Zika virus, inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. And as always, I appreciate spending the next 30 minutes with you as we discover together, today, and on each show. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you monthly by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freydert Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Earlier this year, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a travel warning for those heading to and from specific areas of the world affected by the Zika virus. The warning was especially aimed at pregnant women, as the mosquito-borne disease has been identified as a probable cause of serious defects in newborn children. Even more recently, National Institutes of Health Director Dr. Francis Collins called Zika unprecedented, noting that the NIH is working intensively on developing a successful vaccine for the disease. And the first confirmed case of Zika virus in Wisconsin has been reported in a woman who traveled to Honduras. So, based on what's known to this point, what's the risk level in our country? Dr. Ann Powers is chief of the Alpha Virus Laboratory Division of Vector-Borne Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Powers spoke with us recently about the CDC's most up-to-date findings on Zika. First, she begins by recognizing that there is risk, but she believes that Zika doesn't present high risk. Well, as far as what we consider the risk to the United States, 
It's certainly any area that has the appropriate vectors. We don't necessarily consider that there will be high risk because there's a number of factors which would keep outbreaks from being very large in the United States. And I think a good example is to look back at our previous dengue virus outbreaks that have occurred in the United States, and they've been relatively small scale for the most part. So we would anticipate something similar with Zika if we were to have local mosquito-borne transmission. And as far as any reports of the virus being transmitted within the U.S. to date... No, no mosquito-borne transmitted cases in the U.S. at this point. Which is great news. But what are the symptoms of the Zika virus if you were to have it transmitted to you? The fact is, they're surprisingly very mild. So mild, in fact. Symptoms for most people are so mild that they may not even know they're infected. Right now, we're estimating that somewhere around 80% of people are actually asymptomatic, so they would have no indication that they've been infected. For the 20 or so percent who do actually show symptoms, they tend to be fairly mild. There's a very low-grade fever. They have a rash that shows up. Sometimes they may have arthralgia, conjunctivitis, so kind of red eyes. Very mild symptoms that usually resolve within just a few days. So with symptoms that mild, how is Zika commonly detected and diagnosed? Well, the rash seems to be one of the more prevalent symptoms that's appearing, at least in the cases that we've had reported to us so far. So, you know, people show up with a rash, they know they've traveled to an area where there's ongoing transmission, so they'll go to their doctor and uh, get tested for that, and that's how the samples come to us for diagnosis. Meanwhile, far more cases don't get diagnosed. You're right, most people simply don't because if they don't have any symptoms, they'd have no reason to be diagnosed. It's fortunate that the virus's effects are so low grade because as far as treatment. Actually, there is no treatment other than, you know, if you have a fever, you know, you can take some antipyretics, you know, take something for the rash. But basically, it's supportive therapy. There is no actual treatment, nor is there any vaccine available for Zika. Then what's the big deal about Zika virus? Dr. Power says when it comes to risks, that's where the mosquito-borne illness produces more serious concerns. There are occasional reports of what's called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a somewhat neurologic symptom that's associated with many infectious agents. The link between Zika and Guillain-Barre is still being evaluated, so we don't have a lot of details on that at this point. But even those who do have that, it's a very, very small percentage of the population that have any type of Guillain-Barre or neurologic involvement. Of course, the biggest risk are pregnant women because there is very strong evidence at this point that there is a connection between Zika virus infection while the mother's pregnant and poor fetal outcomes, spontaneous abortions, birth defects. So really that's the population that is most at risk and the population we're most concerned about preventing infections in. That's why, although the risk is minimal for most people, the Centers for Disease Control is focused on informing the general public about some serious risks that do exist surrounding Zika virus, especially for pregnant women. The big focus relates to the fact that it does seem to be linked to causing these birth defects, and they're very severe birth defects, so we clearly don't want babies to be born with this if we can give preventative information to help people keep from getting exposed during their pregnancy. There hasn't been an infectious agent associated with a new birth defect for over 50 years, so this is something that we want to look at very closely to make sure that there aren't other viruses that could be causing these same sorts of problems as well.
that we just haven't discovered. And although not great in numbers, she confirms that there have been some cases here in the U.S. There have been a couple of cases of pregnant women who have traveled to affected areas and then come back to the U.S. and had problems of poor fetal outcomes or birth defects associated with their pregnancies because they were infected during pregnancy in a travel area. So there have been a few of those cases, yes. According to Dr. Powers, how concerned should we be about the Zika virus? Well, that depends. If you're pregnant or planning a pregnancy in the near future, the concern people should have is if they are pregnant to really try and take steps to prevent becoming infected during their pregnancy. If people are thinking about trying to become pregnant, there's some steps that we recommend on our website about trying to avoid infection prior to pregnancy because we don't have some information, for example, on how long the virus persists in semen. That's the area of focus that we want people to look at is prevent infection of pregnant women or those who are trying to become pregnant. But for everybody else... Those people should have very little concern about the outcomes associated with Zika because over 99% probably really will not have any problem or long-term problems associated with the Zika, even if they do get infected. It's a very small population that we're really focused on, but because the outcomes are so severe, we want to do everything we can to prevent those infections. Finally, Dr. Powers reminds us that the latest info on Zika virus is readily available on on the CDC's website. And that's basically updated daily. It gives everything from testing, guidance, and recommendations on how to prevent being bit, traveler's information, new information we're finding out on studies, everything there that people need. Our thanks to Dr. Ann Powers, Chief of the Alpha Virus Laboratory, Division of Vector-Borne Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control. Go to cdc.gov to get the latest updates on Zika virus, and we'll be sure to post that website on our CTSI website, along with this show. In a few minutes, we'll hear from an area expert who shares the importance of thinking and acting locally and globally when it comes to public health issues. But first, a summit was held earlier this year in Brazil, where entomological organizations from around the world met to discuss collaborative efforts for controlling mosquitoes and mosquito-borne illnesses. Dr. Grayson Brown is Principal Investigator of the Public Health Entomology Laboratory and Professor of Entomology at the University of Kentucky and one of the organizers for the recent Global Summit. We had the opportunity to get his expert insight on the Zika virus and, more specifically, the mosquitoes that spread it. We found his take quite interesting. First, we asked Dr. Brown how many total varieties of mosquitoes are known to exist. And of them, how many are known to carry the Zika virus? There's about 3,000 species of mosquitoes worldwide. In North America, we have about 160 species. In a typical Midwestern state, you have about 60 or so species. That said, there's really only about 30 or 40 species important from the public health perspective out of all those 3,000. And of the ones that transmit Zika, we have several that can transmit Zika in the laboratory, but in the field, in terms of driving epidemics in human populations. There's two known for sure. One of those two is the Asian tiger mosquito. The Asian tiger mosquito biotype that we have in North America is from northern Japan. The only one that's been shown to transmit Zika to human populations is an African biotype. So we don't know that the Asian tiger mosquito we have here in North America is going to be an important player as Zika moves into North America. So at this point, we're thinking of just one, Aedes aegypti. So does Dr. Brown expect to see cases of Zika virus by those mosquitoes? carrying the virus here in the U.S.? Any day now, yeah. 
I mean, it's already ramping up. We're expecting to see hundreds of thousands of Zika cases in Puerto Rico. Aedes aegypti is active in Key West right now. It has been for a month. So any day now, somebody's going to contract Zika from Aedes aegypti in the Florida Keys or Miami or someplace in the extreme southern part of Florida. But if so, will the Zika virus stay mostly isolated there? Or are there additional locations of the U.S. that are likely to see cases of Zika-carrying mosquitoes? Dr. Brown says that depends. If it stays with the Aedes aegypti, that's a tropical species, so you probably won't see much in the way of cases north of, say, Orlando, Florida, and maybe north of, say, Houston, Texas. That's as far north as they would go. If it does start getting transmitted by the Asian tiger mosquito, then you'll see it in the eastern half of the U.S. as far north as Minnesota. Which, for Wisconsin, would mean... You guys would get it, yep. You guys wouldn't have a large amount of it, but you would have some. It would come in for you the very end of the summer, probably late August, early September. And if it does start cycling there, it would only cycle for a short period of time. Now, mosquitoes have been described by some as the most deadly species on our planet. Would Dr. Brown say that's an accurate description? Yeah, I would. Uh, right now, malaria just by itself kills a person a minute in the world. It kills 10 times as many people as die in wars on an annual basis. It kills more people than die of lung cancer or traffic accidents. Yeah, and that's just malaria. That's just that one disease. Dengue infects 100 million people a year. And then uh, chikungunya and now Zika, well, they're infecting millions of people per year. So there's no other insect that causes that much human misery and direct human suffering. Of course, there are many things individuals can do to prevent the risk of getting bit and infected. First of all, it's personal level by using repellents. Any of the commonly available repellents are very effective. DEET really works well on the Zika vectors. 33% is the maximum concentration that's really necessary for these things. Avoid being outside, especially late in the afternoon or early in the evening. That's when those mosquitoes are active. If you have to be outside, then provide as much skin cover as possible. Keep your screens in good condition. The uh, mosquito companies that come in and spray your backyard for mosquitoes, they have products and a spray technique that for this particular kind of mosquito is highly effective. You can get 80, 90 percent reduction for weeks to months. There's also things entire communities can do. In fact, Dr. Brown says helping prevent the spread of Zika is our social responsibility. These mosquitoes, container breeders, are really effectively fought by individuals cleaning up their own yards. And people really need to think of having mosquitoes breeding in their yards as being as socially unacceptable as drinking and driving. So if people will cooperate with the mosquito control authorities in their area, that'll really help a lot. For the non-expert, it would seem logical to just eliminate the disease-carrying mosquitoes from existence. But as Dr. Brown explains, that's an overly simplified solution to a far more complex problem. Besides, it was tried once and it didn't work. Yeah, it's a conceptually simple solution, but actually carrying it out is uh, really difficult. We had this mosquito almost eradicated from the Americas in the early 1960s. We did that by just lathering DDT throughout the Americas. Tremendous amount of ecological damage was done in that effort. And then it turned out to be unsuccessful. So we would have to be prepared to do something like that again if we wanted to eradicate these things. Next, we asked Dr. Brown to tell us what was discussed at the global summit he helped organize. He says, in the end, it was agreed that controlling Zika virus is really more of a sociological problem than a medical issue. We discussed what we can do about it, what types of research are needed. We discussed what the practical problems are that are limiting their ability to control mosquitoes better, what 
we need to learn in terms of epidemiological outcomes of the various treatment options. So the conclusion was it's really more of a sociological problem than anything else. We have to develop different types of insecticides and control methods biologically and get the community more involved with mosquito management itself. And although the Zika virus is a more recent concern, this summit was actually planned well before this current outbreak. It had already been planned. We planned it two years ago. When dengue started its uh, large-scale outbreak down there, we could see that other viruses were coming, and so we could tell that there was going to be several waves of viruses, and sure enough, that's what's happened and there's still more waves of viruses to come. So this is the time to start working on improving our infrastructure for mosquito management throughout the Americas, particularly with respect to this mosquito, Aedes aegypti. A second summit is planned for later this year in September. Does Dr. Brown anticipate that Zika will be the hot topic at that one as well? Yeah, it will. Zika has mutated since its arrival in the Americas, and so the strain that has mutated in the Americas has bounced back across the Pacific and has showed up now in Southeast Asia. And so it now looks like we're going to have a global pandemic of this particular virus. We can't stop it. And so it'll be a very clear global concern. So at this time, how concerned does he think we should be about the Zika virus? It's continuing to mutate and generate new forms of pathologies and new symptomologies that we hadn't seen before ever in a mosquito-borne disease. So this thing is getting worse as it's going along. When this first came out, it was considered pretty much of a mild disease, not really going to be very important. But as it has adapted to the human population, it has really gotten much more serious than anything we've seen. What's going to happen in the future at this point is anybody's guess. I personally am guessing that it's not going to be a big issue in the majority of North America. But if it did, then I wouldn't be surprised. And we're watching it with bated breath. And what's his prediction as far as future mosquito-borne virus outbreaks? This is being driven by factors that are going to continue. There are factors like increased transportation, particularly between South America and Africa, and uh, increased urbanization. About 15 or 20 years ago, the world passed a midpoint where more than half of the people in the world now are living in urban centers. They're getting an increasingly high concentration. We have a project in Angola right now. The capital of Angola is less than a third of the size of Racine, Wisconsin, and uh, has 8 million people in it. And that's where you have yellow fever. And so as long as people accumulate in high concentrations and population centers, we're going to have these kinds of problems, particularly vectored by this particular mosquito. The one thing that I want everybody to do is continue to support mosquito control in their area, even if you live as far north as Wisconsin, because it's not going to be long before there's going to be some bad mosquito outbreak that's going to get that far north. At that point, Dr. Brown said he had to go because it was feeding time. So naturally, I had to ask what that meant. We have these boxes that contain, oh, up to roughly a thousand or so mosquitoes. We'll put arms and some of them. That way you can feed multiple boxes at one time and we all stand around letting the mosquitoes feed on it. We get thousands of mosquito bites in a day. I've been doing this for 40 years, so we don't really react to it anymore. Well, I guess someone has to do it. So for all of the bites he and his team get in the name of mosquito research, the rest of us thank them. That's Dr. Grayson Brown, Principal Investigator of the Public Health Entomology Laboratory and Professor of Entomology at the University of Kentucky and an organizer of recent and upcoming global summits on Zika virus and mosquito-borne diseases. Next, we headed to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a partner institution of CTSI, to get a global perspective on Zika and public health 
from a local expert. Dr. Lauren Galveo is Senior Scientist of Global Health at UWM's College of Nursing. As a public health physician for over 20 years, she has considerable experience in developing global health programs and conducting research. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Galveo recently to gain her insight. She begins by telling us that, as a native of Brazil, she has personal experience witnessing the ravaging effects of mosquito-borne diseases like Zika virus and many others. I grew up in the south of Brazil, and I went through medical school there. Although the north and northeast of Brazil are more affected by mosquito-borne diseases, so early in my life I learned about it, and I encountered mosquito-borne diseases as well as I learned about major socio-economical determinants of this disease. And while her more recent global research has been specifically focused on HIV prevention, maternal child health, and family planning in underdeveloped areas of Africa, she finds that many of the same social and economical factors play a key role in the spread of Zika virus in many countries. I would like to emphasize that these diseases such as Zika are diseases of poverty and inequality. So these mosquitoes, they usually breed on places where there is not a regular water supply, there is lack of sanitation and garbage collection, and limited vector control, and are more limited access to health care and public health measures. So more specifically for mosquito-borne disease, while I was working with Save the Children, an international organization in the early 90s, I work directly providing technical support for child survival and maternal health programs. And those programs integrated health and economical interventions to fight malaria. In order to respond to the Zika epidemic, we should use some of these lessons learned from other epidemics such as malaria and dengue. Now, working in global health for over 20 years and in over 20 different countries, you'd think at some point Dr. Galveo must have suffered from a mosquito-borne disease, but she's happy to report. Fortunately, I never contract any mosquito-borne illness during my global health work. I have been working throughout more than 20 countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and I always use preventive measures when going to areas affected by malaria, such as sleeping under bed nets, using insect repellents, using malaria prophylaxis when appropriate. So working in global health, one can be at risk of contracting serious disease, so it's essential to use preventive measures, be informed and prepare for each country you go. Like I was in Brazil last year visiting family and I was actually in the northeast of Brazil, but I fortunately didn't contract Zika or malaria or any other disease, but I use always preventive measures. Earlier this year, the World Health Organization declared Zika virus a global health emergency due to its suspected link to serious birth defects. As someone who's worked closely with the WHO as both an advisor and consultant, Dr. Galveo says she agrees that their declaration is necessary. Yes, I agree with this declaration, it's basically a call for action globally. So WHO and other international organizations, they have been criticized previously for being slow to respond to other outbreaks, such as Ebola in 2014. So this time WHO was quick to respond. And since then, there has been a launching of a number of emergency procedures and activities by WHO, WHO members, women's groups, governments, 
So the strategic response from WHO basically looks at three main areas. Disease surveillance, response at the national and community levels. Also another area that this strategy aims is to promote research. So it's essential that we are prepared globally and can respond quickly because there may be even other outbreaks in the future. This may not be the last one. So I believe that this time was much quicker than in the past. Among Dr. Galveo's primary areas of research are maternal and reproductive health and family planning. And she tells us that in her native Brazil, where Zika is rampant, these are just a few of the issues affected by the spread of the disease. Brazil has many economical inequalities. We still have a lot of issues with racism, inequalities in access to health care and public health. So these inequalities affect most the poorest areas of north and northeast of Brazil. And Zika adds another challenge in this complex situation. Zika now has spread to most states in Brazil, and there are several effects of the Zika epidemics that we already seen there. The country has been undergoing major problems in quality of care and access to some of the population and unequal access to the poor and to the Afro-descendants. So Zika adds another strain to that health system. For example, we have more than a thousand cases confirmed of microcephaly and about 1,700 cases of Guillain-Barré syndrome. So this really poses a strain in the health system. Another concern that I have is about sexual and reproductive health issues and women rights associated with Zika. That's a mosquito-borne disease, but it also can be transmitted sexually. So we still have major problems, inequalities by region of the country in terms of access to contraceptives and condoms. So therefore, Zika is having an effect of bringing to the front lines the discussion about sexual reproductive health and women's rights in Brazil. The Zika response really has to look at those issues in Brazil. In sharing her experiences as a global scientist, Dr. Galveo was a presenter at a Zika-related discussion forum hosted at UWM titled The Zika Virus in the Americas and Beyond. So what was the outcome of that forum? Well, I think the main outcome was to raise awareness about Zika and global health in general to an audience of students, faculty, and others in Milwaukee who joined us. So we were able to listen about their concerns. This was just after WHO declared a public health emergency of international concern. At that time, there were many issues that were not clear. We still have many issues that are not clear, but at that time it was even more, including the relationship of Zika with microcephaly, the modes of transmission, how it could affect the U.S. This panel was in the context of a class that I teach, Global Health at UWM, and then we ended up inviting people from the community and attract the media attention. That was a very productive panel to increase the awareness. As we enter into our own mosquito season, Dr. Galveo sees value in more forums to inform people about Zika. I believe that other types of general forums about Zika it could be important to raise awareness, to dispel myths and fears and panic, and provide correct information about the Zika virus to the public using the most recent available evidence. And I say that because every day there is something new. I also think it's important to have other forums that could also bring different groups of researchers, students of multiple disciplines, and participants from other institutions and private sector, for example, to generate discussions about research and other community 
community response, and this could really lead to collaboration. So I think it's very important to have these kinds of forums. In the end, she believes we shouldn't fear Zika virus, but instead be informed about it in order to think about it and act on it both locally and globally. I would say that people in the U.S. and Wisconsin should be prepared and well informed about these types of outbreaks, including Zika, and about the importance of global health in general. As the U.S. is part of the globe and anything that affects other countries can also, to some extent, affect the U.S., it's essential to be well informed and prepared, not only for the sake of the U.S., but also for the sake of the well-being of all the people around the globe. Finally, Dr. Galveo does see one significant benefit from the increased focus on Zika virus, an increased interest in global health amongst her students. I've been fascinated by the interest of students about global health. I think it's a major importance to inspire young people to work in global health. And I'm very excited that UWM is really supporting us as faculty, as researchers, to make this field grow. Like we have a global health certificate for undergraduates. So we hope to grow even more in global health education at UWM and collaborating with other institutions such as the Medical College in global health. So very important. That's Dr. Lauren Galveo, Senior Scientist of Global Health at UWM's College of Nursing and a public health physician for over 20 years in underdeveloped countries. We appreciate her joining us today and sharing her important global experience and research. And we value the local impact she's having on global health studies. And with that, we've come to the end of this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Ann Powers, Dr. Grayson Brown, and Dr. Lauren Galveo. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happy, healthy, and mosquito-free days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And be sure to share your knowledge of this show and the CTSI with all of your family members and friends. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. Co-produced by Tom Crawford and Jeremy Kuzniar in collaboration with WMSC Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.